We're going to open up to Genesis chapter 38. So if you'd grab your Bible, turn to Genesis 38. And if you would all please stand as I read through this passage. We are going to read the whole thing. It is a unique passage that uh, maybe is shocking in some ways. But we want to give full attention to the whole counsel of God as we read these things and as we recognize and then as we look at why this is here in this story in the book of Genesis. So we're going to read in Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know what sh- that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of that place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, 
the signet, and the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just, we just read a crazy chapter. A lot of archaic names and places there, and we think, how does this portion of Scripture, why is it in the Bible? What does it have for us in the year uh, 2019? Well, it has a lot, as we will see. Where we see that um, your word, your Savior, is for yesterday, today, and forever. So, Lord, I pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for each one of us this morning, how this story of Judah and Tamar impacts our life today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. Crazy story, Genesis 38, is it not? I'm sure you guys are thinking, if you've never read it before, you're not familiar, like, what are we reading? And it's chapters like Genesis 38 that, that, that here at the crossing, we have a conviction to walk through books of the Bible, whole books of the Bible, starting verse 1, and we go through the end of the last verse of that book. We want to teach the, the full counsel of God. We want to teach fully every book from Genesis through Revelation. And it's our conviction because we believe that every book tells one singular story, that these 66 books written by 40 different authors tell a singular story. There's a singular thread, and it's the story of redemption. Or as Ephesians 1 sums it up, uh, I use these three initials to sum up Ephesians 1, E-R-A. Ephesians 1 sums up this, we're elected by God the Father, we are redeemed by Jesus Christ, and this redemption, this salvation is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Elected, redeemed, and applied. This is the story of redemption. Of redemption, and a lot of churches, if you've gone to them, and maybe you have, uh, uh, preach the Bible more as a self-help book, how to help us get a little bit along in life, a little bit better, maybe have a, a little bit better life. Some churches preach it as a, a moral book that we are to look at certain characters of the story and emulate them, and so they teach the Bible in parts, but they don't teach the Bible in whole, and they skip over chapters like Genesis thirty-eight because it doesn't fit their narrative. Well, again, we here at the crossing, we want to preach the whole of the Bible, every book of the Bible, and not just in parts. Because we believe Jesus and what he said in Luke 24, he says that beginning with Moses, Genesis, and all the prophets, he taught the scriptures according, concerning himself. And usually as our rhythm here in the, uh, at the crossing is we'll, we'll go through books of the Bible, like I said, we'll, we'll go in Genesis, we'll go, our next book will be a New Testament. So we'll go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, and help connect the storyline in each book as it progresses since the beginning of Genesis. Therefore, when we come to, to stories like Genesis chapter 38, uh, we walk through them and we don't avoid them. So Genesis 38, it says, is a messy story. We just read it. It's gritty. Uh, and almost like you read it, you almost feel dirty in some parts of it. It's a sinful story. And yet, we see God's grace all over this story. We see this breakthrough in the lives of Judah and Tamar, but also we see how the story 
will tie us to Jesus Christ, who is the greatest breakthrough of all. So let's look at this breakthrough of God's salvation in a story that is thousands of years old, but it has purposes for us this morning. First, we see Judah's need for a breakthrough. Judah's need for a breakthrough in verses 1 through 10. Now, we jumped back in the book of Genesis last week, and we looked at Genesis 37, Joseph's story. Right, Joseph came on the scene, his brothers in their sin hated him because Joseph was favored by his father, so they, they sold him uh, to some slave traders. And then all of a sudden we have a break, but as we are reading this, it, it, I don't know, you read the story and you're like, well, what happened to Joseph? Our mind isn't on Judah and Tamar, like who cares about Judah and Tamar? What's going on with Joseph in Egypt right now? Why is this story even here? Why is there a break? Well, there's a couple important reasons why uh, for a break in the Joseph story. And one is this. First, uh, there's a contrast. There's a connection between Judah and Joseph. And we'll connect those two in the coming weeks. But first, the second most important reason is this, is that Judah, out of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, his line is going to be chosen as the royal line. It's going to be chosen as the line in which the kings of Israel come. And we'll see that in Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob blesses all of his sons. And we see that in particular, out of this line comes the greatest king, the king Jesus Christ. We've already seen he's coming, his first coming as our savior. His second coming, he will be coming as the conquering king. And as Revelation 5, 5 says, he will be coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come to rule and conquer, and establish his new kingdom. So in light of Joseph's story, which we said last week covers the 25% of Genesis, the last, uh, the last quarter of the book, Joseph's story is important because the main point isn't about Joseph, but the main, one of the main points about Joseph's story is he keeps Judah's line alive. And so that's why this is so important. We're seeing the line of Judah, and we will connect it to Christ. So keep that in mind. That's why there's a break now. Let's look at verse 1 now. It happened that at time, after, just after Joseph's incident, just, just after Genesis 37, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Harah. And he's a, he's a pagan. He's a non-believer. He's in the land of Canaan. This is Judah's buddy. And verse 2 says that Judah saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her, he married her, and he went into her. And we have to recall that this is a no-no. If you guys recall in the book of Genesis, as we've been going through it, that both Abraham and Isaac says, we do not marry outside the tribe of Judah, outside of Israel, the Jewish people. And in particular, we never marry or merge with the Canaanites because they are not compatible with our culture. They're not compatible with our values. They're not compatible with who we worship, the one true Lord God. But Judah, the great-great-grandson of Abraham, uh, just has to have his Canaanite cutie, you know. His flesh just takes over. He just has to have her, so he rebels and marries her. And they conceive, and they have three sons. The first son we see is Ur. The second son we see is Onan. And the third son we see is Shelah, pronounced as Rich did, Shelah. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's a joke there, Shelah. No boy wants to be called Shelah, so he named it Shelah, right? Poor bloke, all that jazz. Okay, here we go. But anyway... Judah was in Shebez and bore him. And notice all this happens outside the promised land. Judah shouldn't even be here, but he hooked up with his, 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 his pagan non-believing friend who influenced him to come down to Canaan. And all of a sudden he mar- marries a Canaanite woman and he lives and he plants his root in Canaan, outside the promised land. And then we see in verse 6 that 
uh, Judah gives uh, Ur uh, a wife, and her name is Tamar. Uh, but Ur is a wicked, wicked man, so in God's providence, he puts him to death. We don't know what his wickedness was or what he did. It's just it was so devastating that the Lord immediately puts him to death. And then we see a next couple verses, weird, weird story. And it doesn't make sense to us. Look at verse 8 of Genesis 38. And then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up her offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Well, what is the duty? This is a weird, this, is, this doesn't make sense to us in our culture. Well, what Judah was doing here with his son Onan is what's called back then the, the Leverite marriage, a Leverite marriage. This was a common practice in the customs of the nation around the nation Israel, but then Israel also adopted it and put it into uh, law in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And the sole purpose of this was to keep the family lines going. Keep the family lines going. So what we see here is Ur, the oldest son, dies. So the Leverite marriage was this, is that the next brother in line was supposed to take the widow of his older brother who just died as his wife and then produce prodigy, produce children. But the children would not be under the, the second son's heir. It would be the dead man's brother. That would be his line, would still continue. And so this is what Onan was supposed to do, but he didn't want to do it. The reason why is because if Onan would have gotten Tamar pregnant with a son, again, the child would take on Ur's name, and this child would be the next in line to lead the family once Jacob died. He would be the firstborn. We know that's an important term that we've seen throughout Genesis. Well, Onan didn't want that. He wanted the blessings. He wanted the privilege as the firstborn. So he didn't do his duty. So what we see here is we see Onan and his selfish ambition. He doesn't want his brother's line to continue, so therefore he does something crazy, which we will see in a second. So again, Onan's sin here is his selfish ambition. He he rejects the covenantal responsibility that he is to uphold. He, He rejects the morally right thing to do in this custom and in this culture. Again, to keep his older brother's line going, he does not want to do that. He shirks his responsibility. He wants his older brother's line to stop, to be broken, to cease, so that he is next in line for the blessing and the firstborn. Again, we see massive selfishness, because he's not about the family, he's about his own ambition. So that Odin's first sin. His second sin is this, is that he took advantage of this situation. He took advantage and used his duty for his personal gratification. His personal gratification. He used Tamar. He used her for his gratification, for his own pleasure. Again, never intending to get impregnate Tamar or to marry her. Look at verse 9, verse B. It says this, So whenever... He went into his brother's wife. He would waste the semen on the ground. Yes, we just read that in church, right? That verse is in the Bible. The key word is whenever. The key word there is whenever he went into this. It means he went multiple times to have intercourse with Tamar. This was an ongoing thing. This is where he went just to have sex with her. Again, he used her for his personal gratification. Again, we see this by his action, kind of put it PG. During in-course, when it was time to plant the seed, he spilled it on the floor. 
He did this intentionally, never to fulfill the Levite marriage vow. This was the reason why is given. He said so that no offspring would be given to his brothers. So therefore, the Lord puts him to death. For really two reasons, we get a little bit more. One, for not going through with his covenantal responsibility to keep the line of the firstborn Ur going. But secondly, because he took advantage of a victim. He took advantage of someone in need. He took advantage of a widow. He abused his power for personal gratification. And the question for us today is when we stop and pause, it's like, well, how does this hit us today? Well, the Levirate marriage doesn't really hit us today, even though some cultures still practice this culture today. For us, it, it's not in our culture. It's foreign to us. So the second half informs us today. Do we still see this? Do we still see individuals take advantage of others for personal gratification? Do we still see that in today's culture? Absolutely we do. Both men and women, both married and unwomen, especially when it deals with sex, can, can use it selfishly. Uh, they use it not in a way to love and look out for their spouse or their partner, but they do it in ways to just pleasure themselves. So we take advantage of individuals. So that's one way. But even worse was that Onan took advantage. He abused a widow, someone who was socially outcast, someone who was in need, someone who needed the, the protection of Onan, not the abuse. You see, Tamar was a widow, as we already said. She lost her husband. And again, living in this culture, if you're a woman and you lost your husband and you didn't have any more children, you were destitute. You were in trouble. You were socially vulnerable because you had no one to provide or protect you. And again, they didn't live in a culture like ours. This is where it's tough for us because if this happens in our culture, we know that that women can go in the workforce. They can go out and provide for themselves and even build up, obviously, protect themselves as best they can. And, but, but, but in this culture, there's a reason why as we look through the, the whole of Scripture that God emphasizes the need of taking care of widows. Widows are near and dear to the Lord's heart as they should be for us as well in our day and age. They should be looked after. They should be uh, protected and provided for. Psalm 146 says this, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. James 127 says, Hey, this is perfect and pure religion. Undefiled before God the Father, that is to visit the orphans and the widow. And there's a whole book in the Old Testament revolved around a widow named Ruth. The book of Ruth, where we see this man, Boaz, fulfill this Leverite marriage. We see him come alongside and provide and protect and become the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. The Lord loves the widows, and therefore so shall we. And so this, this, this hits us today. This is very permanent for us, that we need to be mindful of the ladies that, that find themselves in this situation in our own body. Who are, who are the widows here at the crossing? Who are the women in this situation? Again, we're not living in a Levirate culture, but we still are called to be responsible to provide, protect, serve, love, and encourage these women. And I think we do a pretty good job here at the crossing, but we can always be on the alert to do better, to serve, again, the women in this season of life. We have, in our life group, uh, we have Miss Bernie. Many of you guys know who Miss Bernie is, and she's 92 years old, and, and we got together for life group this past week, and obviously we're in this passage, and it's no coincidence 
You know, Bernie has uh, struggled. She had a kind of a stroke maybe about a year ago, and her life has been, has been tough. And up to that point, she's been, she was 92. She was driving herself around. She lived by herself. She was self-sufficient. It was amazing. And we had people still even coming around and being involved with Bernie. Um, but in particular, um, I asked Tina, I was like, well, when did, when did her husband die? And, and he passed away, I think, like in 2006. So she's been self-sufficient since then. But again, she's, she's had a tough year. And now she's in a, in a, in a, in a, in a home, and um, uh, it's tough to see, but our church has done a, a pretty good, pretty solid job in serving Miss Bernie. In particular, you know, Tina and Grace Moore have done a phenomenal job in serving Miss Bernie as well as others. And I received this email from her daughter a couple, I think a couple months ago. Uh, Lori Fuller sent this to, to me. She said, uh, please inform your church, you know, put this in the bulletin or whatever, but this is what she said. Bernie and her family would like to thank everyone at the church, the crossing, for bringing food during her illness, for visiting and serving her. Here's the line that I'm so proud of that I just love hearing because it tells something about your guys' heart. It says this, you have been such a blessing. You have been such a blessing to her and to her family. You have served her well. Why? Because you understand the gospel. You understand God's heart for widows and people and the like. And you come along and you lay down your lives and you sacrifice and you serve her. So well done. Keep it up. But Tamar would not have said this about Onan. And what we see here is uh, Judah needs a breakthrough because his line's about to end. That takes us to our second point, Judah's legacy or Judah's breakthrough in verses 11 through 26. In verse 11, Judah does something that, that kind of makes sense if you're thinking about it. Uh, he has three sons, and so far he's 0 for 2 in the Leverite marriage deal, right? Uh, he's given his older son Ur, he dies. He's given Onan, he dies. And all of a sudden he has one last son. This is the son that's going to carry on his name. And he doesn't want to give her to Tamar. Why? Because he thinks, she thinks she's cursed. She thinks he's cursed. And what we see here is God's providence worked this out, works this out for his breakthrough. He does something, uh, again, that you just didn't do back in that culture. Verse 11, he sent Tamar back to his family. It was not Tamar's family that should have been responsible for Tamar. It was Judah. But he shirks his responsibility. He sends her back to her family, which he shouldn't have done. All under the, the, the statement is like, when my youngest son is uh, eligible or old enough to marry you, then I will send for you. And then you will marry him. But in the sense, we know that was a lie. That was not the case at all. He just wanted to get rid of Tamar. Well, Tamar figures this out. We see this in verses 12 through 19. And then it comes to the, the, the another crazy situation. Judah's wife dies. Shua dies. And Judah hooks up with who? His friend Hurrah again. And then they go to this sheep shearers event. This is like some big party where they shave sheep. It's a big party, big celebration, food, drink, and other pleasure-seeking opportunity. So this is a massive, massive party. Uh, Tamar knows that Judah is going to be there, so she quickly comes up with this plan. Uh, and she knows Judah's character, or we may say his, his lack of character. She dresses up as a temple prostitute to entice him. So why? Well, because her life is on the line. Her life is on the line. Again, she is widowed with no one to provide or, or protect for her. She, she, she doesn't want to be a social outcast all of her life. And so she dresses up. She doesn't do something drastic. She'll be out of this family and out of their covering. 
And we see that Judah sees her as she's all dressed up. Prostitutes veiled themselves. You couldn't see their faces. And Judah thinks she's a, a temple prostitute, and he solicits her service. And we see this in verse 16. After Judah solicits her service, she says, Well, what will you give me that you may come to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And he said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. I love how one commentator kind of lightens up the situation a little bit because it's such a crazy situation. He says this. He says, so she's going to get his goat. And she says, but until then, but until she does, she doesn't want the wool pulled over her eyes, right? Judah doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any cash. So he says, do you accept credit card, right? She says, do you, you, know, do you have the goat with you? No. Therefore, give me, give, me, give me your credit card. Give me a pledge. And not only that, this, this pledge is like, like I said, giving her a credit card. But this, this, these other two things, the signet, your cord, and your staff, it'd be like her giving her a credit card, getting Judah's credit card, his passport, and his social security card. This is what Judah gives Tamar just to have a, a time with her. And just pause and think about that. We've all seen this. We've all seen individuals, and maybe you have done this, that you almost sacrifice your whole life for the lust of the flesh. That we see this, we see this on TV with all kinds of people that we're like, how can someone do that? They sacrifice everything just for whatever it is. We gotta watch ourselves. We gotta watch the lust of the flesh. It is a powerful thing. Sometimes it will lead us to sacrifice our life, as we see with Judah. And then we see in verses 20 to 23, they have the, they have the, the time together. Um, Judah leaves, and he, and he wants to be a man of his word. He wants to send the goat to this temple prostitute, doesn't know it's Tamar. So he sends it back with his friend Hurrah, but Hurrah can't find her. And Judah's like, all right, don't worry about it. Forget about it. Just let it pass. Even though she has all that stuff for me, maybe she'll forget about it, maybe she'll sell it. I don't want to be embarrassed right now. And then we come to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. What do you mean she's been immoral? Again, she's with this Leverite marriage. She was like engaged to Shelah. And this is why she's been considered immoral, even though Judah has sent her off and wants nothing to do with her. Moreover, she's pregnant again by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah's like, yes, finally, here's my get-out-of-jail-free card with Tamar. Here, I always knew there was something wrong with this woman. That's why my sons were dying. Now he finally can get rid of her. That's his thought. Bring her out and let her be burned. Let me pause and ask you a question. What's your response to that? What's your response to that when you hear that? When you hear Judah's verdict, I don't know about you, but it kind of ticks me, ticks me off, right? It fires me up. The one that should be burned, Judah, is who? should be Tamar. should be you. You're the hypocrite. See the double standard. Was Tamar's act sinful? Yeah, she dressed up and deceived Judah. She deceived Judah. A lot, a lot of deception goes on in Genesis. Yet, in some sense, she's the one preserving Judah's line. In one sense, she's the one actually acting and, and, and taking care of the covenantal process, the responsibilities of Judah. She's taking that on. He was the one acting in his flesh. He was the one that was shirking his responsibilities as the leader of the family and him to take care of Tamar. He's just out seeking his own pleasure at this sheep shearing event. He takes one of these temple prostitutes, one of the worst forms of idolatry. 
He's the one that should have been burned. And there's a couple of great lessons with us uh, this morning for us in Judah's response. The first is, is when you and I are sinned against, our immediate response is what? We want justice, right? We want that person who sinned against us to pay and pay big time. It's a natural response. We want justice. So when we are sinned against, our natural response is justice. But when the shoe is on the other foot, when we are the ones to sin against someone else, is our natural inclination to say, I want justice? No. What is it? I want grace. I want mercy, right? We have this, and it makes sense. I do this, I do this all the time, right? Someone sins against me, I want justice. I sin against someone, I want grace. We, we, we live in this world. And here's the thing. We, being saved by Christ, he, he paid for our sin. He took on and, and made the just sacrifice and died on the cross for our sins that we should have paid. And then he extends that just sacrifice in grace, something that we don't deserve. He extends it to us so that we can receive salvation and forgiveness. It's a gospel grid. It's a gospel uh, lens in which we live. It's a gospel foundation. Justice and grace. They go together. You can't have one without the other. And so when we come to these, these times and when we have these situations where we sin against someone or someone sins against us, may we be a people that sees it through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of what Christ has done for us. I'm always amazed, and I don't know about you, when you hear the stories of, of something like um, a family's you know, daughter gets murdered and the, the, the murderer gets his just penalty, right? He gets, he gets prison, he gets jail time. And then the family of the one that lost the loved one stands up and kind of gives the you know, gets to gets confront the, the, the murderer, the one that took their daughter's life. And, what, and, and sometimes, in particular, when they're Christians, what do they say? They say, man, what you have done is, is, was horrific, and yet we forgive you. What? Who does that? How can that be a reality? It can be a reality because those people know the grace of God and what Jesus has done for them. And may that be said about us at the crossing. May we be a people that extends the gospel of grace. When we are sinned against, when we are sinned against, and that person that sins against us comes and they ask for forgiveness, they repent, there's there's remorse, they're sorry that they hurt us. Let us be a people that's quick to forgive. Let us be a people that's quick to offer an olive branch and to extend grace. And here's the key without strings attached, right? Without strings attached. Now, in there, there might be some time for some healing. That's okay, but let us be a people that operate through this grid. So that's the first thing we can see from and learn from Judah's response. The second thing is this. Usually our secret sins will find us out, right? Uh, usually our secret sins will find us out. And we see this inside and outside the church. Um, sin is deceptive. Sin is wicked. And it, come, and it can cause us, when we do sin, we have these secret sins that we're holding on to, it can cause us to, to hide it and not want to confess it. And, and, and we might be able to do it for a season. We might be able to hide it for a season, but eventually God is not mocked and he'll, and he'll bring it out. And this is what we see happens to Judah. The Lord brings it out. Look at Tamar's response. 
Tamar's like, oh, oh, really, Jer- Judah? Like, really? Burn me? That's, that's your verdict, right? Burn me? Verse 25. She says that she was being brought out. She sent out word to her father-in-law, by, the whim, by, the, by whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she says, please identify whom these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. What does she do? This is awesome, man. <laughs> She's like, uh, hey, Judah, uh, who, whose ring is this with the big fat J on it, Right? That's what she does. It's by this guy who owns this ring is, is I'm pregnant. I would say that Tamar did get his goat, right? In verse 25, he goes on, Then Judah identified them, and he said this, She is more righteous than I. He repents. He acknowledges sin. Now, this, this statement, she is more righteous than I, she's, he's not saying that, hey, what Tamar did was right in the sight of God's eye. What he's saying is like, I'm a bigger sinner than she is. My sin overshadows what Tamar did. Her act was not not sinful. It was sinful, but but his act was even worse. That's his confession. She is more righteous than I. Judah's busted. But instead of backtracking, instead of making up excuses, he does the humble and right thing. He takes responsibility. He repents of his sin. And we see that not only does he confess his repentance... But we also see there's a change in his behavior because it says he did not sleep, know her again. And not only that, but we see that throughout, at this point, throughout of Judah's life, we see a major lifestyle transformation. Something changes in Judah. There's a breakthrough. The grace of God captures Judah's heart at this moment. Kind of like when David was caught with Bathsheba and Nathan said, you are the man, David. David, Judah's heart changes. From this point on, we see Judah walks in humility. He, he, he's not self-ish, he's selfless. We'll see the next time in Genesis chapter 44, we see Judah now stand up and, and take personal responsibility for what they have done to Joseph when Joseph calls them out and, and he puts his life on the line to save his little brother Benjamin. He's a changed man. Not only does he confess repentance, but we see there's a change in his lifestyle. And that's what repentance is. It's, it's confession and change. Not to perfection, but, but there is a, a, a change in the lifestyle. Something happened, and what happened to Judah was God's grace got a hold of his heart at this moment. He saw his sin for what it was, rebellion, and he confessed and he repented. And, and again, this, is, this, this hits us this morning. Because maybe there's some of you right now that are, that are holding on to a, to a secret sin. Maybe someone in you right now that, that it's eating you up alive. You know it's you know it's wrong. It's eating you up. And what this story does is say, this morning confess. This morning repent. This morning acknowledge what you're doing is wrong and it's and it's wrecking your relationship with the Lord and, and, and repent. Throw yourself on the grace and the mercy of Jesus. This is why he came for you and for me. This is why he died on the cross to make payment for that sin. So this morning, if that is you, if you see your life in Judah holding on to the secret sin, don't wait for an embarrassing moment to be called out on it. God is extending you an opportunity now this morning to confess to him and then maybe uh, one or two people in your life group or where you're walking through, confess so they can come alongside you, repent so they can come alongside you and help you and fight this battle that you're feeling. And then start walking in freedom and not in shame.
not in shame. This takes us to our third and, and final point. We see that Judah's breakthrough is good, but Jesus' breakthrough is even better. We see that in verse 27 and 30. Verse 27 says this, When the time of her labor came, this, this is crazy, three verses. Um, there were twins in her room, her womb. And when she was in labor, one put the hand out, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first, but he drew it back in. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, look, I, I have five kids, and we have some crazy birth stories, right? I shared them like a number of years ago. We'll, we'll spare you that now. But I've heard some crazy, crazy birth stories, but nothing like this, right? I mean, I mean, the, the kid is almost playing like reverse hokey pokey, right? And he's like, you put your right hand out, you put your right hand in, right? <laughs> oh, that was bad. Oh, that's tough, right? Oh, sorry, visual. Don't worry about that. It's just crazy, though. But this is in the Bible. This is why I love the Scripture. Because it, it, it is so raw. It, it describes life. And here's the first baby, and this, the servant puts the, 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 the string around the finger, but he pulls it back in. Nope. And then here comes... The, the brother and the midwife says this, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach. This is where I'm getting the word breakthrough from this word breach. This word breach means breaking in or breakthrough. This is why I'm getting that word breakthrough. What a, what a breakthrough you have made for yourself. Therefore, we would call your name Perez. Perez means breakthrough, breaking in, breach. The birth is, is epic. This is an epic birth, not only in the circumstances, but the implication of the birth of Perez. Because the birth of Perez points us and connects us to Jesus. This is why this is how the Bible is so awesome. It takes a story like Genesis 38, something that happened thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years ago, and it, and it connects to Jesus. You see, Perez was the great, 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 etc. grandfather of the royal king, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will come through the line of Perez, through Judah and Tamar. We see this genealogy preserved in Ruth chapter 4, but I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we see this connection. As we know, Matthew chapter 1 um, is the genealogy of Jesus, and it, and it declares to us and, and, and points us from Abraham through Jesus and how they connect. And we see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of who? Perez. And Zerah, by who? Tamar. But Perez, guess one, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and you track it down, and it goes down to verse um, 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was also called the Christ. What an incredible, incredible story, connection, that out of this crazy situation, all this deception, all this sin, the greatest king, our savior, the lion, comes from 
this man Perez. What a story. What a, what, a, what, a, what a story. What a genealogy. What a picture of God's grace in this genealogy. A breakthrough. Here's the other thing that's cool. Did you guys know that there's five women listed in the, in the, in the genealogy of Jesus? Five women? And you would think like the five women that would be mentioned would be like the matriarchs, right? Would be like Abraham's wife, Sarah, would be like Rebecca, would be Rachel, would be Leah, right? The wives of the patriarchs, but they're not. Five of the women, or four out of the five of the women are Gentiles. They're not even Jewish. Only Mary is. We have Tamar the Canaanite. We have Rahab the Canaanite prostitute. You guys remember her story in Judges. We have Ruth. We talked about a little bit in Ruth when we taught through the book of Ruth. And then we have Bathsheba the Hittite. Bathsheba the Hittite, who was what committed adultery with David. And then we have, of course, Mary, the, the one Jewish young woman. And her story is also kind of a, a particular situation. She's an unmarried pregnant woman, which was a no-no, obviously, back in that day. And we know that crazy story. But isn't that something? When you stop and pause and think about that, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. All these women's stories were scandalous, right? Um, But nevertheless, as one said, nevertheless, these unions were by God's providence. They were links in the chain of the Messiah. What what an incredible story of God's grace. What 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 does that tell us this morning? It tells me this. It tells us that there's... There's room in God's family for anybody. Isn't that good news? That's what the breakthrough is. That's the greater breakthrough in Jesus, is that no matter who you are, God's grace is extended to you. His invitation for salvation is extended for you. He wants you in his kingdom. He wants you in his family. It doesn't matter what you have done. Prostitutes, sexual sexual deviants, selfish and ambitious sinners, are all part of Jesus' line. Not just, not just in the family, but a part of his line. If it wasn't for Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, there's no, there's no connection to Jesus. So what does that tell us this morning? That means there's room for you and there's room for me. There's room for everybody. There's room for our wayward family members, our wayward co-workers, our wayward friends. And that we are called to take this greatest breakthrough, the breakthrough of Jesus Christ and his message of the gospel of grace and salvation through him and him alone to to them, just like someone has done for us. We were people, you and I were people once far from God, and now we're included to his family. God is gracious. He's a God of breakthroughs. And again, this is the ultimate breakthrough. The ultimate breakthrough is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should what? Should not perish but have eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the breakthrough of Jesus Christ. And that's for you and for me and for everyone this morning in our circles of influence. So the first question is, have you experienced that breakthrough? Have you experienced the grace of God in your life? And if you haven't, today is the day to, to, to do what Judah did, to repent, to turn, to confess that you need a Savior. And then watch the, the Lord send you His Spirit, and then you will be informed by His Word, and your life will take a change. And it will be a change for the better. 
And if you already have done this, one, look, look to those who need this message and, and be the ambassador, be the agent whom God uses to, to Lord will maybe bring them to faith. But two, just also pause and, and just be amazed at the grace of God in your life. I love this story. It just, it just was like, it just made me worship. Be like, Lord, thank you for the grace of God in my life. Because a lot of what's taken place in this was, was, was my life story, and I can relate to it. But by the grace of God, He has broken through my hard heart. May He do the same with you. Father, thank You for this story. As we have just seen, it's a story that happened thousands of years ago, and yes, it seems archaic, and yet we see the relevance to, to our lives this morning. Lord, thank You for Tamar's heart to to fight for life, to, to fight for the, the covenant blessing for Judah. Thank you for Judah that he recognized his sin and his rebellion and he repented and he was a changed man and then became a, a, a pillar in the next several lines for the, the tribe of Israel that we see that the, through him the royal line ultimately comes that brings us to Jesus and thank you for, for Jesus for your death on the cross for our sin, for your resurrection that gives us a future hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.